It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget you can get in touch with us at any time if you want to suggest something for the podcast, you want to get cross about something in the podcast, just email me, matt at times.radio. Matt at times.radio. And, uh, well, if nothing else, I might just say hello to you. Right, coming up on today's episode then, immigration is rising faster than inflation. We've got uh, talk of a softening on Brexit. The conditions really couldn't be better for a resurgence from the right. But what's going on with the Reform Party? Why are they not storming up the polls? We'll hear from the leader, Richard Tice, and we'll dig into the polling to see just how susceptible the Tories are from Nigel Farage's threatened comeback. Uh, before that, though, as ever, we kick off with the Columnist panel, and on a Monday, it's Libby Waitsheet, it's Libby Purvis and Rose Sylvester. The Colonists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yes, and we say a very good morning to Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Morning. And morning to Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. Nice to have you both. Uh, we'll talk about Matt Hancock in a minute. Don't you worry about oh, that. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, let's turn our attention, first of all, to uh, wind farms. This feels like a heartwarmingly, reassuringly retro row. For as long as I've been covering politics, we've been having arguments about the merits of wind farms. Um, The Conservatives are falling out about them this time because, they, weirdly, they're very pro them, it seems, or want more of them, uh, despite the fact that Rishi Sunak was adamant during his first leadership contest in the summer uh, that he would would keep the tough rules uh, on uh, on onshore wind farms. Uh, Grant Shapp says there is no row. Is there a row, Libby? Oh, it does sound like it. I mean, over everything from wind farms to aid budgets, it it, it is starting to feel like the, uh, the the bickering death of a what was once a great political party. And I find it really depressing because actually, and my own column touched on this today, we, we need a lot of expertise. We need a lot of intelligent listening. We need a lot of proper committees of people who, who work and listen and think and then make decisions. And what you get here is a lot of really what feels like personal wrangling. Uh, internally. I mean, that, that's the feeling that I, as an outsider and citizen outside the Westminster bubble, get. And it's just really depressing. And the point is, that in, your, in your column, you, you've, uh, you've subjected yourself to a planning uh, process. Um, uh, and, and I suppose that's the point, isn't it? Is that rather than having uh, blanket, th- this thing good, that thing bad, actually a, a responsive, like you said, considered intelligent 
uh, debate followed by, you know, nuanced decision-making. Well, yes, we need, we need, I mean, we do need all these new energy sources and there are some places where there should absolutely not be wind farms onshore and offshore and there are some where there should and there are ways of bringing the onshore, um, the, the offshore power onshore, which are less ecologically and environmentally damaging uh, than some of the ones proposed at the moment. You know, if you look at the Europeans, they do it differently. But they're just, in this country, there just seems to be this feeling that government stumbles along well-meaningly and innocently behind very big profit-making you know privatized business and um and the, the government ends up ends up rolling over one way or another and i think the ban on onshore wind farms was a prudent thing for a while because there was a possibility of really enormous change in in landscape and uh, change in amenity for people who live near them but i i just i don't like the way that the arguments are conducted they never seem intelligent or nutritious <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. they're not nutritious and i suppose the other thing right is that the the landscape is going to change. The country and the world that we live in is going to change, not because of somebody putting up a wind farm, but because of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to need new sources of energy, as Libby says. The thing that interests me on this row about wind farms, though, is you've got two former prime ministers, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, rebelling against Rishi Sunak on this, signing up to this rebel amendment, even though Boris Johnson himself was on the other side of the argument when he was prime minister. So that just shows you how much discipline is breaking down in the Tory party now. And with sort of sense of election defeat, um, wafting around Tory MPs, they're you know they're losing that sense of clubbing together for the sake of power, and it's now kind of every man or woman for him or herself, uh, and they're thinking about what do their constituents care about, what's good for them rather than what's good for the party, and I think you know that's very dangerous for Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister. The honeymoon hasn't lasted very long, has it? And I suppose that's the thing, is that when, when they're having a row about something that actually was supposed to have been a settled thing, you know, the, when Boris Johnson and Liz Truss are putting themselves at the forefront of a, of a movement which actually they, they could have done... Well, Liz Truss didn't have quite so much time, but, but Boris Johnson had time as Prime Minister to do something about this. Um, it, 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 it's a classic Libby where it's not really about the issue, it's just about whose side you're on. Uh, I'm right, you're evil... Uh, and must be defeated at all costs. Well, yes, and that, that is what is depressing. I mean, to have, you know, two former prime ministers, they're one as kind of a, a mini prime minister in case of Liz Truss, to ha have them sort of assaulting the leader of, of their own party over this. And, and the, the same, there's another row going on about um, levels of international aid. Uh, it, it is a sort of, the, it feels like a sort of me generation MP thing, you know, where what I think is the only thing to think, you know, and, and Rishi's wrong. And just because he thinks he's the boss, he's not. And that that is just not edifying, really. I mean, I don't particularly want a terrifically kind of ferociously united party, you know, which knows what it wants and drives through everything. But you, you would like a little bit more coherence and a bit less sort of personal grandstanding. I do not believe for a second that Boris Johnson really cares about any of the things he's arguing about. He's just causing to tr cause trouble. Surely not. Surely not. Mm. Well, let's move on to another area of trouble. We touched on it, the, uh, the issue of foreign aid. Rachel, you interviewed Andrew Mitchell at the weekend, former, mm. former International Development Secretary. Uh, then on the back benches, a sort of strident campaigner and, let's be honest, rebel when it came to the issue of foreign aid. Uh, but now he's back in government, but still slightly playing the part of rebel from the backbenchers. 
Yeah, in the quickfire that we do for the Saturday interview, I said to him, are you a minister or a rebel? And he sort of agonised over it for ages. He couldn't work out which one he was. And there is still a sort of rebellious streak in him. I think the problem for Rishi Sunak is he brought Andrew Mitchell back as international development minister because he thought that would be the way to shut him up. He had been the sort of arch rebel, the leader of the rebel army on this issue, on the backbenchers. But the problem is he actually cares about the issue and he has cared about it for years. Uh, and he knows a lot about it. So, you know, when the government doesn't meet its um, return to its target of 0.7% of GDP, he's going to argue for that. You know, he's going to argue for that rise to be reinstated, um, which he told me he did vigorously with Jeremy Hunt ahead of the autumn statement. And when it turns out that um, the aid budget is being raided left, right and centre by other Whitehall departments, he's going to stand up to that. Um, So it's really fascinating um, that, you know, I think Rishi Sunak brought him back for political, you know, to try and keep him quiet and calm the rebellion. But actually, it means he's got quite a powerful voice within the cabinet speaking out on this. It's a sort of ghost of David Cameron haunting everything, isn't it? Everything he did in terms of, you know, stick a wind turbine on your roof and uh, increase foreign aid. And it's all sort of, you know, they're all picking over the last scraps uh, of what David Cameron left. Well, those those were all sort of totemic, modernising... decisions and gestures by David Cameron and Boris Johnson and the, the, the Prime Minister since have sort of abandoned that attempt at modernisation, but it's still there in the Tory party, that instinct to be more compassionate and more modern. Yeah, and actually the thing that they're most focused on right now is um, uh, just falling out with each other. Um, let's move yeah. on because I really want to uh, try and get my head around what's happened at the Welcome Collection. So this is a museum... Um, which has shut its own display, which only opened in 2007, which is the bit that I... Well, uh, one of the many bits of this I don't uh, fully understand, uh, because they decided it was racist and sexist. The Welcome Collection. Uh, uh, it attracted 550,000 visitors a year, but it scrapped the display dedicated to Sir Henry Welcome, the US-born pharmaceutical tycoon, because of its alleged racism and sexism. Libby, what do you make of this? I mean, on the one hand, you don't want them displaying things which might cause offence, or maybe there are ways of explaining that. And I think there are some wood carvings and things which show sort of white people coming to the the saviour of of black people. But on the other hand, is there anything racist about Napoleon's toothbrush? (laughs) Yes, there's a lot of... I've been to it a long while ago when it first opened. It is full of the most extraordinary stuff. But what upsets me about some of these museum attitudes now is I want every interesting thing from every age to be able to be shown, but with proper context and explanation. Because otherwise, if you airbrush away sort of awful people and things in the, from the past, you actually get less understanding yeah. of past inhumanities and not more. And they, they will then start wavering, vaporing on about lived experience. But lived experience is what you get from history. It's what you get from memoirs. And you are not silencing a minority by explaining how its ancestors were treated. So it's just about doing these exhibitions right. Um, and I don't think it, it, walking around it, you don't feel you're glorifying welcome at all. You know, you think, what a strange man. Uh, and you, you do think about the people who, who suffered under, the, you know, the doings of the period he lived in. And I suppose that the whole po- the point, uh, Rachel, is this sort of moving on from the idea that, that in the past, you know, putting up statues, opening museums to great men, because they're almost always men, and th- apparently 
airbrushing out the bad stuff. It is possible, you know, we, we should move on from that and think what actually museums or uh, and exhibitions can tell you about someone. You learn about someone. In the same way, if you go to a museum about the Second World War, they're not glorifying Hitler. They are telling you what happened. Mm -hmm. And there's another thing here, which is, should we only have in Britain things that are from Britain? So that, Or should we yeah. only have in London things that are from London? So there's a whole argument here about cultural appropriation, which seems to be behind this row uh, around the Wellcome Institute Museum. Um, but, the, but if you only have things from your very narrow part of the world, you're never going to understand other cultures. So something like the British Museum has to have... Um, exhibits from all around the world, even if that asks, you know causes uncomfortable um, questions to be asked sometimes, because that's how visitors learn about other cultures. Similarly, you know the Louvre in Paris or the museum in Cairo, or the, there there is a there's a case for artifacts from around the world to be all over the world, so that people wherever they are can. Um, you know, without having to just see them online, yeah. actually see these amazing things in the flesh. There uh, are obviously some very totemic, you know, high-profile examples like the Elgin Marbles, where, you know, I feel slightly more ambiguous about that. But I think if you, if you said we're going to return absolutely every exhibit to where it originally came from, that would be incredibly sad because you'd, you'd end up with a sort of little England museums in England and little France museums in France, etc. Yeah, it's et interesting that the... the, so the um... The explanation from Welcome says that the uh, the, collect the exhibition was problematic for a number of reasons. How do these objects belong? Who, who do these objects belong to? How were they acquired? What gave us the right to tell their stories? The result was a collection that told a global story of health and medicine, in which disabled people, black people, indigenous peoples, and people of colour were exoticized, marginalized, or exploited, or even missed out altogether. So you're right that you can't sort of have it both ways. You can't ha you can't say we should only have our own British things here. And we should exactly. also tell the story yeah. of, of marginalised people from around the world. And I suppose part of the point is that, the, 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 uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, you, you, you can tell the story of those people being marginalised through it. It just seemed an odd thing to sort of shut it down mm. um, I, I interviewed Nic um, Nicholas Sarota the other day, the oh, chairman yeah. of the Arts Council, and he was making exactly this point about museums. If you end up returning everything, then we all lose out. You know, that there are maybe certain particularly high-profile exhibits that you need to think about. But if if it's a sort of absolutely everything back to its original place, then yeah. that that kind of denudes the cultural life of all nations. Yeah, and I suppose the point is that you can put things in an exhibition and then explain, this is... Uh, this is the the illustrates the attitudes at the time, which is why black people didn't get the same medical attention as white people, or why uh, disabled people were excluded by society. And, and, you know, and that's that's how you educate. People. I would have thought. And if you if you want to, you could also say, and by the way, British uh, women are five times more likely, I think it is, to die in childbirth. Black British women than yeah. white. So you can you can um, contextualize it in the uh, it present. Bring up to the if, present as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's fascinating, although, yeah, I'm still slightly baffled about, by the whole thing, but no doubt I will um, have someone put me right later on. We're now joined as well by Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Morning, Paul. Good morning. Now, I want to play you something. The, uh, the Transport Secretary, Mark Harper, told Times Radio yesterday. But it is not possible for everybody in the public sector to get an above inflation pay rise. What that would do is it would mean inflation expectations would rise and we would see inflation higher for longer 
So, Paul, is he right? Is it not possible for everybody in the public sector to get an above inflation pay rise? Well, it's certainly not possible given the amount of money that the government has allocated to public services at the moment. They allocated that money a year ago when they thought inflation might be 2%. We know it's rather higher than that now. So if they did want to give people anywhere near inflation pay rises, they would need to find probably tens of billions of additional money or they'd need to sack hundreds of thousands of public sector workers to make it um, affordable. And of course, in the autumn statement a couple of weeks ago, they found a little bit of extra money for um, schools and hospitals, but but that was it. And certainly not the kind of money which would give even inflation matching, let alone inflation busting pay rises. And the point, uh, the sort of the broader point is one that Mark Harper was making, that one, it would cost a lot of money, but also there are so many people who work in the public sector that you would sort of move the dial on in inflation and the, 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 the direction of the economy if everyone got a big pay rise. Well, possibly. There's about 5 million people in the public sector. Um, you, If you did set a norm such that everyone there got 10 or 11% and then the private sector followed suit, then you might have the sort of effect on the economy he's talking about. I think that's a little speculative. I don't think we can be in any way sure of that effect. It is a risk, but I think it's a small risk. Uh, particularly given that public sector workers have actually had smaller pay rises and indeed on the whole pay cuts since 2010, um, even than they've has been the case in the in the private sector. I think the more the more substantive problem for government and the thing that's really holding them back is not so much the fear of inflation. It is much more the fact that it's very costly. Obviously, if you've got um, the, the, the public sector pay bill is more than two hundred billion pounds every year. So every 1% on pay is more than 2 billion of spend. And if you were, for example, to give inflation matching as opposed to the level of um, pay pay we've actually seen this year, that in itself, just for this year, will be an extra 10 or 12 billion pounds. So that is, you know, that begins to add up to significant amounts of money. Um, Let's bring in uh, Libby and Rachel on this. Libby, there's quite a complicated argument for ministers to try and make, isn't it? Libby or Rachel. so fascinating and I'd be interested in what Paul thinks on this is where public opinion is going to end up on this so I think instinctively the voters will be more uh, sort of instinctively siding with the nurses than with ministers but the nurses are asking for 19% pay rises but which is way above what members of the public are getting in the private sector Um, so I think if the nurses came down a bit with their demand ministers would be in a very difficult position but I think the kind of public opinion is is going to be on the side of nurses teachers um instinctively rather than with the government on this um and I, I, I suppose th- th- this um becomes an issue Paul if they did, were they to give into uh, the demands of the unions then the same thing would happen next year and the following year uh you know because there's always a case for um doing more you know people want more money yeah, it's it's. I, I honestly think this is one of the hardest um, challenges that out of quite a lot the government's going to have over the next um, year or two. They they have offered only for most um, public work sector workers four or five percent this year with inflation at ten. That's a big pay cut. It's actually um, less good. I mean, it's even worse than what's happening in the private sector. 
Libby Purvis, Rachel Sylvester and, of course, Paul Johnson there. And you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Right, up next, what's going on on the right? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, is the right all right? You've got immigration rising even faster than inflation. Talk of a softening Brexit. There's anger at a cost of living crisis after a decade of Tory government. The conditions couldn't be more perfect for a resurgence for a party of the right. You've got Nigel Farage even teasing a comeback. But why is his reform party at only about 6 or 7% in the polls? Now, obviously, the Conservatives are facing a huge challenge from the Labour Party at the next election. But how much should Rishi Sunak be worrying about the return of something we haven't seen for a while? A vote-winning party to the right of the Tories. Shortly, we'll speak to the leader of Reform UK, which is the party, of course, hoping to capitalise on all of that. But first of all, let's dig into uh, the poll in the state of the nation. Tanya Abraham is from Polsters YouGov. Morning, Tanya. Me. Uh, and we've also got Tim Bell, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London. Morning, Tim. Good morning. First of all, I just want to sort of uh, pick through, just so people sort of remember where we are. If we go back to the last election, Conservatives, when they got the majority of 80 seats in uh, 2019, that was in part, you could argue, because there wasn't a party from the right standing against them. Uh, this was Nigel Farage announcing his Brexit party candidates wouldn't stand against Boris Johnson in 2019. The Brexit Party will not contest the 317 seats the Conservatives won at the last election. But what we will do is concentrate our total effort into all of the seats that are held by the Labour Party, who have completely broken their manifesto pledge in 2017 to respect the result of the referendum. And we will also take on the rest of the Remainer parties. We will stand up and we will fight them all. That was Nigel Farage. Well, of course, the relationship between the Tories and the smaller parties on the right has often been strained. This was David Cameron on LBC back in 2006 talking about UKIP. I mean, UKIP, I mean, it's just a sort of, you know, bunch of... Uh... Uh, well, they're just trying to make a bit of mischief. I mean, as far as, I, can, as, far as I can see, I, they're, they're, it's a bunch of what? Well, <laughs> fruitcakes and loonies and closet racists, mostly. Um, yeah, that didn't go down uh, brilliantly well. So, Tanya, talk me through the polling, first of all. The Brexit Party obviously doesn't exist in the same way. It then became the Reform Party. So where did their voters go? And who's currently uh, backing uh, the Reform UK Party? 
Well, at YouGov, the past kind of few polls have shown that um, Labour have retained their kind of lead at the moment. So around 48% are voting for Labour, um, 25% said they'd vote for Conservatives and 5% are saying they'd vote for Reform. Um, Of the 2019 Conservative voters, so those who voted for the Conservative Party at the last election, around 12% say they plan to vote for um, Reform UK at the next election if the election was tomorrow. So this is what the snapshot is at the time today. Um, We can see that they tend to be more, reform voters tend to be more kind of older, maybe uh, more likely to be male and also um, more likely to have uh, voted leave at the EU referendum. So um, at the moment, there is quite a small group overall um, who would consider voting for reform. But um, we've seen over the past few polls that, you know, around a tenth of 2019 Conservative voters would consider voting for this party. And how does that compare to the the chunk that the Tories are losing to the Labour Party? It's one of those things that we're keeping an eye on because of the vote share that we have seen over the past few months that Labour have got. Um, Many kind of commentators in the debate around why isn't Labour doing better than they should be because of this. Um, It will be interesting to see how this plays out. But talking about issues such as immigration, um, Britain's relationship with the EU and how the government are dealing with all of these issues will be really important in terms of what the public think about the government and how this plays out and whether it's addressing the issues that people consider to be important. Uh, Tim, you've been looking at this uh, interplay between the Conservatives and parties on the right for some time. Is it fair to say that Nigel Farage was critical in Boris Johnson winning those those seats and what became the Red Wall? Do you think that made a difference? I mean, clearly, there's nobody, there's no self-publicist quite like Nigel Farage. How important has he been? uh, Do you think to this uh, this political picture? Well, I mean, I think he's been incredibly important over the years in the sense that I think fear of Nigel Farage and any of the various vehicles that he's headed up has forced conservative politicians into taking a much harder line on Europe and indeed on immigration than perhaps they would otherwise have taken, not least for the sake of the economy. So you can argue that Nigel Farage, to some extent, helped push David Cameron into the Brexit referendum. And you can also argue that, you know, a lot of what Boris Johnson promised back in 2019 uh, had a lot to do with making sure that the Brexit party didn't repeat uh, in the general election what it had done to the Conservatives uh, in the European Parliament election in 2019. Indeed, you could argue that you know, uh, Nigel Farage was responsible for the Conservatives picking Boris Johnson as their leader in the first place. So he, he is incredibly important. I have to say, though, when it comes to the 2019 election, uh, his decision not to stand against Conservative candidates didn't really make much difference to the Conservative Party in the sense that it probably saved a handful of Conservative MPs their seats, perhaps. Um, Ian Duncan Smith might have been one of them, Dominic Raab might have been another. But actually, the Brexit Party deciding still to stand against Labour um, in in, uh, those seats meant actually the Conservatives uh, didn't win uh, a fair few seats that it might otherwise have won. Certainly when we were talking about uh, the the majority for the Conservative Party, instead of 80, it could have been about 130 in 2019 had uh, the Brexit Party not existed and not stood in those uh, Labour-held constituencies. And that's because in those seats where you had sort of pro-Brexit, fed up with the Labour Party, Labour-held long-standing seats, the Conservatives could have hoovered up all of those disaffected voters, whereas actually every person who went off to the the Brexit Party, you, you know, cost the Tories a vote, essentially. 
Yeah, that's spot on. That's exactly what happened. So, uh, and that is always going to be the fear of the Conservative Party. You know that that even if the the Brexit Party or uh, Reform, whatever Nigel Farage wants to call it doesn't actually win seats, it takes enough votes away from the Conservative mm. Party to mean that they actually lose seats to the Labour Party and even in some cases the Liberal Democrats. And Tanya, let's just, um, in terms of the issues that arise, are there particular issues that people who go to uh, the reform uh, before that, the Brexit Party, I mean, the fact that immigration is rising up the national agenda, concern about it being a big issue facing the country, does that, does that correlate with, with people switching? Yeah, I think issues are a good indicator as to what people consider to be the kind of ta the important issues to tackle by the government and also by other parties. Are are other parties considering the way that the government addresses these issues issues to be um, satisfactory? Um, we know that the economy, health, and immigration they've kind of been those top three issues for the past um, few months and even years, and it's indicative of what's happening in the country at the moment. So with issues such as immigration and in the past with issues like um, Britain's relationship with the EU, um, this has kind of shown in terms of what the public think um, are important and consequently how uh, the government and other parties would be dealing with it. And in YouGov polling, we've seen in the past that the Conservatives have typically been considered a, a better party to tackle issues such as um, immigration and you know taxation and defence and so on. But in the past kind of year or so, um, Labour have over overtaken the Conservatives in in, in issues such as immigration, where they have considered in the past to be quite strong, so it's a it's a useful indication as to as to how strong and and where people put the parties in the positions and and with um, parties like Reform UK who have had a very strong stance on one issue, it will be interesting to see how the public consider. Um, those types of parties, um, how they would handle other issues, which are not considerably um, a very, you know, well-known issue that's aligned to one party in particular. Tanya, thank you for that. Tanya Abraham uh, from uh, YouGov. Right, well, let's let's speak to the man himself. Uh, we can speak to the leader of Reform UK, Richard Tice. Morning, Richard. Good morning to you, Matt. Very interesting hearing your, uh, your contributors there with their analysis. I agree with some, not all of it. Well, I was going to say, well, let's start with the with the good news for you then. You've got a Conservative government on its knees, three Prime Ministers in six months, immigration's on the up, inflation's on the up, illegal channel crossings, are, uh, uh, people coming across the channels on the up, Brexit under threat, supposedly talk of Switzerland and so on. These are perfect conditions for you, aren't they? Well, let's be clear, the last four things you've mentioned are actually bad news for the country and is because of the incompetence of the Conservative Party. And yes... As I think uh, some of your listeners may be aware, we've had record levels of new memberships joining. Just on Friday alone, we had 693 new members join after the news of the, the legal net migration numbers from the ONS released on Thursday. So, yeah, we are uh, we represent what I think most people who voted for Brexit, uh, what they wanted, which was to take control of our laws, money and borders. And none of those things, regrettably, have been delivered and are being delivered by the Conservative Party. So why are you still only on 6% in the polls? Well, look, it depends which polls you listen. We, on uh, one a couple of weeks ago, Matt, we were on 9%. We were ahead of the Lib Dems. And it was interesting that nobody in the media wanted to sort of pick up. The, the, the trend is upwards. 
essentially, we are, as Reform UK, as a, as a new brand, we're only 22 months old, we're making progress. Uh, we're, we're consistently ahead of the Greens, we're, we're chomping at the Lib Dems. And I say, we're the party on the up. And I think, that, frankly, the Tories are the party that's on the way down. And we've made it very clear that we're going to stand everywhere except Northern Ireland. So well over 600 seats. I've got 560 candidates as I speak. And we're not standing down or doing deals with uh, with anybody. Um, you you tweeted last week, dear Rishi and Jeremy, obviously Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, the more you betray Brexit, the more you destroy our economy, the more members we are signing. Uh, yesterday, huge second best in November so far. We aim to crush you with thanks, Richard. How are you going to crush the Conservatives when, uh, even when they're having a terrible time right now, they are still polling, what, four, five times what you are? Well, as you well know, with first past the post, uh, as one of your contributors was just explaining at the last general election, uh, it can be very brutal if someone like ourselves takes significant numbers of votes away from the Conservative Party. And I, I know because we're hearing it, Tory MPs are absolutely petrified in the industrial heartlands, the coastal communities, the Red Wall. Uh, they're petrified of the impact that we would have there. And likewise, in some of the Blue Wall seats, us taking lots of votes will mean that they'll lose those to quite possibly with more tactical votes into the Lib Dems. So the word crush, I think, actually, Matt, is, is wholly appropriate. But isn't it actually Keir Starmer's Labour Party which is doing the crushing? The, the, the people are switching to Labour? Well, look, uh, it's a combination of factors, but the loser in all of this will be the Conservative Party. And given what they've done to the country after 12 years of incompetent rule, uh, frankly, I think that's wholly appropriate. And uh, we're very much, and indeed the Labour Party, uh, are moving towards it, but we very much support the move towards proportional representation, which is now, I think, more and more people recognise is the right thing to do. So you get more parties, more discussion, more debate, more options. Competition's a good thing. Um, but I suppose what you need to try and weigh up is given your your uh, ambitions, your aim, your policy aims... Are you more likely to get some of those with a Conservative government or a Labour government? Because actually, if you stand in all these seats, you take the votes off the beleaguered Tory party, you end up with a Labour government, don't you? And look, let's be very clear. No one can be as incompetent and have, have taken this country to a very bad place as the Conservatives. So the sooner we get them out, the better. And the sooner we get proportional representation, the better. So Rome's not built in a day. You can't have everything you want overnight. It would be nice if we could, but but there we are. But uh, that is that is the direction of travel. And I'm really optimistic, actually, Matt. Within three years of now, we could well have proportional representation, at which point, given the number of people who say to me, I like everything you stand for, but it's a wasted vote because of first-past-the-post, mm. the moment you get to PR, our vote share doubles, that's a very significant shift. But then, it's, it's, but then you're ultimately saying vote Labour, vote for Keir Starmer, the guy who wanted no, a second I'm, referendum no, and freedom no, of movement. Absolutely not. I, no, no, no. Let's be very clear, Matt. I'm saying vote for what you believe in, not what you're afraid of. Vote Reform UK. The more votes we get, then the quicker we will get PR, the quicker we will get uh, more seats in the House of Commons so that we can make a difference in the way that this country is run and managed. You've got to grow your way out of a crisis. You can't tax your way out of a crisis. And we've got to get our own brilliant young people into work. We've got 5.3 million people on out-of-work benefits at the moment, which is an absolute tragedy. It's one in eight of the population. The focus needs to be getting our own people into work, 
not bringing in cheap, low-skilled immigration that the CBI seems to want. They seem to give up on young British people. Uh, you mentioned you've got 693 new members. I know my colleague David Ivanovich has been trying to uh, get the answer out of you. How many members have you actually got now? Oh, I, uh, no political party gives their total membership numbers. Goodness me, you know that. Yes, they do. Very well the indeed. Conservative, the Conservative look, Party we, did when they had their had... contest. They've got 172,000. According to the Electoral Commission, Labour Party's got 430,000. SNP, 104,000. Well, Lib Dem, 74,000. Even Plaid says uh, it's got 10,000. They, they all seem rather round numbers. My understanding is that they don't give exact numbers and they don't give a rolling tally. Look, we've had over 7,000 new members join since Liz Truss was uh, was ousted, and we're delighted with that. And the more the merrier. They're very welcome. They recognise that we stand for lots of things. If people look at our detailed policy document uh, on the uh, oh, on, on the website, Richard, you Richard you're a straight-talking straight kind of guy, Richard. You answer a straight question. All of the other political parties, in one form or another, whether it's in their submissions to the Electoral Commission or we know from the Conservatives because of the number of people who voted, why wouldn't you just say how many members you've got? You've said you've got enough, you're having record days and you're going to crush the toys. How many members have you got? Yeah, I've told you, we've, we've taken on a lot of new members, over 7,000, it changes by the hour, and we're delighted with that. So that's... But what's the total? That, if you've got more than Plaid, if you've got more than Plaid, Plaid say they've got 10,000 members, they told the House of Commons. Have you got more than 10,000? Uh, I, I can, can, can confirm that we've got way more than, uh, than Plaid that you've just mentioned. Have you got more than way the Lib more. Dems? They're on 74,000. Uh, that's all I'm going to give you. OK. Uh, so are you going to stand yourself at the next election? And, Absolutely. And Matt, you're not keeping up. You're not keeping up, my friend. I've already confirmed weeks ago that I'm standing at Hartlepool. If you look at my Twitter feed, yeah. you'll see that uh, I'm standing there. I've been campaigning there. Absolutely. That's where I stood in 2019. But you're not going to win, uh, are you? I'm delighted to be campaigning back there. You're not going to win. Sorry? You're not going to win. You've, you've, you've said a minute ago that because of first past the post and so on, you won't you won't win any seats, and you're hoping for a Labour government that introduces proportional representation. I, I didn't I didn't say any of those things. You, I don't know where you got that. I didn't say I wasn't going to win. I think we've got a great chance. We came a very close third. Uh, the Hartlepool race will be a two horse race. We're we're essentially starting two years out. Last time I started six weeks out. I think we've got a cracking chance. What I'm saying is. First past the post is difficult. We all know that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, if you want to shape an influence, you've got to be on the ballot paper. And we will be on the ballot paper absolutely everywhere. And we're saying to people, look, if you believe in growing the economy, if you believe in looking after British workers, if you believe in a sensible, lawful immigration policy that, that recognises uh, and brings in people for the skills you genuinely need, but that you train British people up, then that's the sort of that's the right way to grow the economy, and that's what we stand for. Richard Tice, really appreciate your time today. Richard Tice, the leader of Reform UK, reflecting on uh, on where they're taking uh, votes from. Let's check back in now with uh, with politics professor Tim Bale from Queen Mary University of London. Tim, I mean, clearly, of course, Richard Tice is going to tell us that they're on the up, they're doing very well, although he wouldn't tell us quite exactly how many members he'd got. Is it a mistake for the Conservatives to worry about? the Reform Party. They're actually, there's a risk that they spend all their time worrying about what's happening on the right while shedding far more votes to Labour on the left. Well, I think that is a really good point. And it's also, I think, the case that they can f spend far too much time worrying about immigration. Uh, although clearly, you know, it is going up the list of uh, voters' worries, as you suggested. Uh, it's nowhere near the kind of level it was back in 2015, which triggered the, you know, the result in the 2016 referendum. And it's, it's nowhere near what it was. 
And to be honest, uh, although people do care about immigration, in particular about the small boats coming across, compared to the economy at the moment and issues of inflation, for example, it's just nowhere near as important. And it's those things yeah. I think the Conservative Party really has to think about tackling. Well, let's speak to one of them now, Damien Green, Conservative MP. Uh, he heads the One Nation group of Tory MPs on the on the left of the party. Uh, morning, Damien. Um, morning. So we'll be talking about high immigration, cost of living crisis, softening Brexit. It's all ripe for a return of Nigel Farage, isn't it? Well, I think um, the, the, that point that um, in the end it's the economy, stupid, uh, <laughs> is is always worth uh, remembering. That certainly those who care most about immigration and who therefore may be tempted by Nigel Farage tend to be very vociferous uh, and on on the email. Um, but <laughs> I think the you know, the central political problem at any time is the economy. And if you get that right, then other problems lessen in importance. I suppose the problem is that the economy is not looking great either, is it? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, <laughs> that I think is, is the central issue. I think uh, clearly Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement was a lot better than, than Kwasi's mini budget. So we have taken the first steps towards recovery on that. But I agree, it's only the first steps and, and, and there's a long way to go. Um, but I think getting that right uh, would be better than uh, certainly than than panicking and saying, "Oh, Nigel Farage is threatening to come back. Uh, let's adopt uh, a load of of Faragist policies," uh, because that will alienate at least as many people as it attracts, and possibly more. And and in the end, um, if we're worried about people voting Labour or Lib Dem, um, you know, we need to get our own policies right rather than just sort of lurching around chasing other people. And um, you talk about Farage's policies, actually, if you came up with things like banning onshore wind farms, flying people back to Rwanda, um, the, the sort of things that maybe we'd have expected a Farage's party to put forward before. Do you worry about the direction of the Conservative Party? I think it's I think the the key test for for Rishi in the future, he's stabilised uh, the government, which is which was the first test, and now he does have to set out a sense of direction. Um, I hear that that in the new year we're going to get that. We're going to get some sort of big, thoughtful speeches about where he wants to take the country, and I do think that's essential. We need to establish um, not just that we can be competent in a way that has not seemed. Um, on the cards over the past few months. And I think we're making big progress about that. Um, but actually, we do need a sense of direction as well. Damien Green, really appreciate your time today there. Damien Green, Conservative MP, who heads the One Nation group of Tory MPs with news of... Uh, it's good to know that in all else uh, in politics, the New Year relaunch is never far away. It sounds like Rishi Sunak has got one uh, coming as well. Tim Bell, finally, um, what, what would you expect to see in, in Rishi Sunak's series of New Year speeches? I've heard that one before. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if you've only been in post a few weeks and you're talking about a relaunch, I think you're in big trouble. So, I mean, you know, as, as Damien says, it really does have to be whatever else he talks about. The economy's stupid. Anything else I think will be useful. But Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Not really that important. 
Tim Bell, really good to speak to you. Uh, politics professor from Queen Mary University of London. Uh, we also heard from Richard Tice, leader of Reform UK, and Tanya Abraham from YouGov. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from.